This is LAC Online Church in Perry, Ohio. We exist to love God and love people. For more information about our church or ministry activities, please visit LakeErieChurch.com. Now here's today's message. I want you to open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 12. And um, this Sunday and next Sunday... I'm going to be talking to you on the question, where are we going? This morning, we're going to look at where you're going. What God is doing in you, the direction and trajectory of your life. Next Sunday, we will talk about where we are going as a community of faith here at LEC and some exciting things that we hope to be able to. Uh, to share with you next Sunday. I want you to I want you to know this morning that God has something very important that he is trying to say. And I know it would be accepted and expected that we would all pay attention. But even more so this morning You know, it's real easy to get distracted and get caught up in what's going on around us and other things that are taking place. My encouragement to you this morning is that we focus in as tightly as we possibly can. There we go. (laughs) Somebody will have to help Brother Dan there. He's trying to learn how to cut that off. But I want you to focus this morning on what the Lord is saying to you. You know, I'm reminded almost every time that I'm speaking here to you, but I'm speaking to for God so that God can speak to you. And I want you to hear what the Lord has to say in your heart today. So let's look at the passage. Exodus chapter 12 This is the story of the children of Israel that have been in bondage. And if you would stand please with me. year that all of the Lord's forces left the land. Notice verse 42. 
On this night, the Lord kept His promise to bring His people out of the land of Egypt. So this night belongs to Him. And it must be commemorated every year by all of the Egyptians from generation to generation. You may be seated. A few days ago, our um, LEC staff, which we have a great one, we all started a journey together collectively. Embarking in 21 to chart a course for each member's personal growth as a leader in this coming year. The objective is to imagine a pathway that by year's end will mean that each of us lead better, serve better because we are intentionally growing as leaders. The truth is that all of us need such a detailed plan. We need a plan that grows our hearts for God, allows us to listen to what God is saying about the direction of where we are and where we're going. And we must constantly be asking ourselves, where are we going? If we don't, we may end up like I did a couple of years ago. I was speaking to a group of pastors in Dubrecken, Hungary. And uh, I had finished that conference and with the missionary guide that was working with me, we were hustling because we had a very tight schedule. We needed to get to the train station in Debrecen and take the one hour train ride to Budapest to catch a plane to Amsterdam that would get me home. And all of those pieces were very tightly squeezed together. And so with my suitcase and my belongings, I'm following the missionary guide through the train station in Dubrecken. And we go out to the, uh, to the place where the, we're going to board, the, to the boarding the dock and, and the train pulls up and we all jump on and we're seated in our seats and we're, we're getting comfortable and, and we're, we're, we've got some drinks that have come, some water and cokes and things, some refreshments that have been ordered for us and we are just kind of settled in. When somebody discovers that we are not on the train to Budapest, we are actually going north toward the Slovakian border. And we are racing towards Slovakia. And the missionary guide has this panic look by saying, Pastor Isaac, I, I don't know how this happened. Apparently, I missed the announcement that the train uh, was going from a different station. I don't know what to do. And so he started talking to the officials on the train and and basically what happened is we got off at the next station and we walked into town and we found a taxi driver, a grumpy old Hungarian man who didn't speak that uh, any English at all. And through the translators, we agreed to pay him a hundred U.S. dollars apiece. And he drove us two hours or so into Budapest, flying down the road as fast as they could possibly drive. We got to the airport, we rushed in, we got, we got on our flight, we made it to Amsterdam and I made it home later that next day. The problem was, we did not know where we were going. We thought we did, but we were on the wrong train. And if, isn't it so true that sometimes in life we realize that we're on the wrong train? We're going in a different direction than we wanted to go. We're not on the right train. 
It can feel like that you're on the wrong train, on the wrong tracks going the wrong direction. You're in the wrong marriage. You're in the wrong relationship. You're on the wrong job. You're in the wrong school. You have the wrong attitude. There's so many things that can happen that can throw you off and put you on the wrong path. This passage that I read to you this morning is one of the more dramatic in all of the Old Testament for at least two reasons. Number one, it's dramatic because there is a massive movement of people that are taking place in a very short order. In fact, the Bible said there were 600,000 men that walked out of Egypt that night, the Passover night. Now just let your mind think about that for a moment. 600,000 men. First Energy Stadium where the Cleveland Browns play holds 80,000 people. So it would be seven plus football stadiums of just men. Now, if you give every one of those men one wife, now you're to 1.2 million. And maybe not all of them were married, but they're according, and sometimes in the Old Testament you'll see where men had more than one wife. I'm not sure why, but they had more than one. And they were at 1.2. And then if you give every one of those couples two kids, and many of them had 10 or 12 kids, but if they just had two children, you're at 2.4 million. That's how many people are walking out of Egypt as a body going out. I tried to imagine what 2.4 million people walking at the same time would actually be. I mean, it's a massive number of people that are moving tonight. Just think about the logistics of feeding, housing, sleeping, that many people. Think about what a massive move of people it actually was. And in addition to all of those people, something very interesting that I don't want you to miss if you, if you still have your Bibles open. Notice that the writer says a rabble of non-Israelites. Now your Bible may say foreigners. A rabble of non-Israelites went with them. Now I didn't know what that was. I'd read that for years. I'd never done any work with that, but I got to looking to try to figure out what that was. And most commentators, most, most people think that that's a group of people that were Egyptians that lived among the people who were slaves and were influenced by their lives in such a way that when the Israelites left, they said, we're going with you. Kind of like Naomi and Ruth, the story of Naomi and Ruth, where Ruth said, listen, I'm not leaving you. Maybe I need to go back to my people, but I'm not going back. I'm going with you. You've made a mark on my life. And when I read that, it so moved me to understand that sometimes our lives can have such an influence that even people who are not like us will follow us wherever God takes us. Your life matters. It influences. These people are following. So there's a staggering number of people that are walking out of Egypt that night. Not only is this story impressive because of the staggering number of people, but there is a witness here to the fulfillment of God's promises to Jacob when he came out of Egypt. Now, this tracks back to the story of Joseph. When Joseph's brothers returned and they said, Pharaoh wants us to get you and bring you back home. We're all going to live in the land of Goshen. And the Bible says, if you go back and look at that, that there were 70 people 
that traveled that day with Jacob as he went back to Egypt, went down to Egypt. And God had made a promise to Joseph, to Jacob. As he made that journey, you'll find that in Genesis 46, 1 through 4. If we can put that up on the screen, please. Genesis 46, 1 through 4. So Jacob set out for Egypt with all of his possessions. And when he came to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to God his father Isaac. During the night, God spoke to him in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he called, I am here. Jacob replied, I am the God, the God of your father. The voice said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make your family into a great nation. Seventy people became millions in that season. That was God's promise. And then he says this, I will go with you down to Egypt and I will bring you back again. You will die in Egypt, but Joseph will be with you to close your eyes. The promise that God had made to Jacob was, you're going down to Egypt, but I promise you, I'm going to bring you back. God kept his promise. Your family will bring you back home, but it's all over with. Now, God did not tell Jacob how long it was going to be. It ended up being 430 years. Not all of them were good. But God made a promise and this trip that I'm describing to you right now is God's promise being fulfilled. That whatever God promises, whatever God has declared, whatever God has said will come to pass. It may not come to pass as quickly as you and I want it, but it always comes to pass. God always keeps His promises. Can you say amen to that? The trip leaving Egypt headed for the promised land took longer than they thought. Longer than they planned. In fact, if you do the research on it, you discover that the distance they traveled, they could have made in 11 days. They could have walked in 11 days from where they were in Ramses all the way to the promised land. But instead it took 40 years. And many of the people that left Egypt that night never saw the promised land. And so the critical question is, why did it take so long? Why did it take so long to get where God had promised them they were going to be? And so for a few minutes this morning, I want to talk to you about the, what took so long. And I'm simply calling it obstacles. The obstacles that kept them from getting where God wanted them to be. The obstacles in your life and my life that hinder us from realizing the promises that God has made to us. The reason sometimes it takes so long for God to accomplish in your life what He wants to do sooner are the obstacles. And I don't have time this morning to talk about all of them. We'll talk about some of them next week because they deal with the reality of us as a church and the things that hinder us from being the church God wants us to be. But for this morning, let's talk about the obstacles that you and I have that block and prevent and hinder our progress. Because obstacles are a part of life. 
And if you're going to make any progress in your life, you have to anticipate them. And you have to deal with those obstacles. And you'll never be able to move forward until you recognize the obstacles that are stopping you or slowing you down and keeping you from being what God wants you to be. Here's the first one. Get Egypt out of me. The obstacle of getting Egypt out of me. What does that mean? Well, important to keep in mind that all these people have ever been were slaves. They've never been free people. The people that walked out of Egypt that night, they've been slaves their whole life. And they've never known freedom. And so in reality, what God has to do, God has to deconstruct their former worldview and give them a new mindset of freedom. And it wasn't easy. Because sometimes getting Egypt out of me is the hardest part of God's job. Because sometimes there's so much Egypt in me that I can't go to the promised land that God wants for me. And as you follow this 40 year journey, you see this constant struggle between God and the people to get their mind right so that they can live in the land of promise. You see God constantly working to help them in at least two places. And they both relate to us. Here's number one. In order to get Egypt out of me, you have to learn how to let go of your former life. You have to learn how to let go of your former life because the past can become like an anchor that drags on the bottom of the sea, the, the floor of the sea and you never are able to make progress or gain speed because you can't get going because you're carrying too much of your past. You say, well, I, I don't understand. Well, let me just say this. Sometimes there are things in your past that you've never been able to get the victory over. You've never been able to let go of. And for whatever reason, they continue to define who you are. For some of you, maybe it was the haunting words of a parent who marked you with their words. And now you continue to see yourself in that way. You've never been able to see yourself the way that God sees you. You're still defined by what somebody said about you. What somebody spoke over you. And you think that's who you are when in fact God says, I need you to get that out of you so that you can understand who I think you are. The, the sad reality sometimes is that because you can't get that out of your life, you can, now you're treating your family the way that you were treated when you were a kid. And you hate yourself because of it. You don't like the fact that you're doing it, but it's because you need to get Egypt out of you. God has to get Egypt out of you. For some of you, sadly, you, you have abuse and violence in your past that you've endured at the hands of people who wanted to hurt you physically and mentally and you've never been able to get past the questions and the anguish that lingers in your mind about why that happened to you. And because of that, your progress is stymied and you're against enough an obstacle that's keeping you from going where God wants you to go. You need God to help you get Egypt out of you. For some of you this morning, maybe it's the unforgiven sin that you continue to carry. 
the memories of a former life, what you did, and the shame and regret that continue to define you because you cannot forgive yourself of what you did. Years ago, I was preaching one time in, in Tocoa, Georgia. And I was talking about Joseph and I was talking about his ability to forgive his brothers before they ever ask him. And as I got to the conclusion of that message, a man in the back got up and he ran to the altar. Just ran to the altar, hollering and crying. Very emotional. The church had these large stair-step staging. And he threw his large body, his six-foot frame over those steps and laid across them and began to bellow and scream out to God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He just kept screaming it. Well, you couldn't preach over it. It was too distracting, so I just stopped. And people came and gathered around him and we began to pray with him. And at some point I said to him, sir, tell me what's going on. Tell me what's happening. He said, I grew up in a church home. My dad was a pastor. But my dad had an affair with a woman down the street. And my mother and I and my siblings, we lived in poverty. While my dad had all the money and all the privileges and his family was down there. We saw them every day. He said, when I saw what this did to my dad, when I saw it, what it did to our family, I couldn't stand it anymore. But one day I walked into the woods behind my house and I screamed at God at the top of my lungs, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand what you're doing. And he said, I didn't hear anything from God. There was no voice. There was no nothing. And in a few minutes, my frustration began to build. And he said, I raised my fist toward heaven. And I began to scream at the top of my lungs, I hate you, God. I hate you. I don't want you in my life. I don't want you talking to me. I don't want anybody talking to me about you. I don't want anything to do with you. He said, I walked out of those woods as a 16-year-old boy and I flushed God out of my life. I got married very prematurely. A child was born out of wedlock. And I got married prematurely. He went off to the war while I was in service. My wife sent me a letter that she didn't want to be married to me anymore and, and sent the divorce papers for me to sign while I was serving in Vietnam. I was so distraught over the fact that she had divorced me, I got addicted to alcohol and drugs, became a heroin junkie. He said, I got dishonorably discharged from the military. I came home and I couldn't keep a job. I lost my kids. I lost my marriage. I got married again. I lost that marriage. He said, I'm telling you, preacher, I'm 60 years old and my life has been one downward spiral since that day in the woods. And I'm down here one more time telling God that I'm sorry. I looked at him and I said, you're kidding me, right? He said, about what? I said, about the fact that you're telling God again that you're sorry. I said, how many times have you told God that you were sorry? He said, oh, I don't have any idea, probably hundreds. And I said, I'm so sorry to be the one to tell you this. But the first time you told God you were sorry, it was over. Somebody needed to hear that this morning. Somebody online, you needed to hear that this morning. Somebody sitting in this room needs to hear that. The first time you told God you were sorry, it was over. 
God never held it against you anymore, but you lived your life. I told him, I said, sir, you've lived your life believing that somehow God's been angry with you. That God's the reason that you're addicted to heroin. That God's the reason that you drink the way that you are. That God's the reason that you lost your marriage. But I'm telling you, God forgave you the first time. You don't have to live in a life of shame and regret. There is an opportunity this morning for you to move past the obstacles that are keeping you from your promised land. You can be free because God wants to get Egypt out of you so that you can live in the promised land that He has provided for you. Your, your past can be like a tether that holds you and you can't get free. You remind me of that character in the Shawshank Redemption. Anybody ever seen that movie? If you have a TV, it shows every day, every hour. You can watch it today if you want. The character Ellis Boyd Redding, played by Morgan Freeman, who after 40 years is finally paroled and gets a job in a grocery store. But he keeps asking permission to go to the bathroom on his job until he realizes that his struggle is simply the fact that he has now been conditioned that he cannot think for himself. He cannot make decisions for himself. That he is always going to be defined by his former life. And somebody here needs to understand this morning that Jesus Christ went to Calvary's cross and the blood of Jesus Christ sets you free. And if you will accept that freedom, you can walk out of Egypt and you can live in the promised land that God wants you to live in. You don't have to be tethered to where you've been. Sometimes you can feel stuck. You can feel that I can't make any progress. You're smothered by the experience. But I'm telling you, there is a power of God that is available to release you this morning so that you can move on with your life. Not only do you need to get your past behind you, but there's another step in getting Egypt out of you. You have to clean up your heart. Listen, you have to clean up your life. You can't go to the promised land until you get sin out of your life. You know, sometimes I think that God must get amused thinking that, he's, that we think He's just going to let us live any way that we want to live and still accept the promises of God. But you can't go there. You can't live in the promised land and continue to carry sin in your heart and your life. And as I've thought about this in the last several weeks, I've thought about this fact that you and I, the Bible says, we live in this world, but we are not of this world. That's what Jesus said. We live in the world, but we are not of the world. But how much of the culture in which we live and work and interact is attaching itself to our hearts? How much of it is changing our values and our lifestyles? How much of it is changing who we are and who God wants us to be? Culture is powerful. And we live in a world that no longer accepts God's word as truth. It no longer accepts that God is our creator. And as a result, this world that is spinning out of control wants to change us and form us after its image. It doesn't want us to live lives of holiness and righteousness as witnesses to a sinful world. And so this culture begins to attach itself to us. 
Through the media that we consume, through the conversations that we have, through the friendships that we carry on with. And if we're not careful, we get, we get these attachments to our lives. And sometimes we don't even know how we've been changed by the things that have influenced us, us influenced us away from God. Paul said it like this to Timothy. He said, it is possible that you can act religious but refuse the power that changes you. And I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I suspect sometimes that sometimes we walk into this place and we act religious and we sing and we carry on, but our hearts are not with God. We have to ask ourselves this question. What am I allowing into my life now that I once would never have allowed? You know, I'm old-fashioned enough. I grew up with a mother who had a very strict, Joey, she had very strict rules around our house. If you said even what we would consider to be a slang cuss word, She'd march you in the bathroom and she'd take a bar of soap and she'd put that soap on your tongue and rub it on your tongue and she'd wash your mouth out with soap. And I don't know if you've ever had your mouth washed out with soap, but I'm just going to tell you the after effects of that are not pleasant. Because every time you add liquid to it, it makes bubbles. Yeah, DJ, you know. He back there giving me the half. I know, I know. Your mama been washing your mouth out with soap. I get it. Meemaw just did not let us talk that way. You know, if you're not careful, you start just sliding away, saying things that you would never have said before. Talking about stuff you would never have talked about before being influenced by outside forces that you would never have allowed in your home before. You say, preacher, are you being hardline? No, I'm just saying that what happens is that we get these things and they start attaching themselves to our hearts and they take us away from God. They move us and change us. We start changing our trust and obedience to God's Word as the ultimate authority. We start living by the worldly standard of whatever feels right is what I'm supposed to do. We allow outside voices and influences to shape the way that we live and believe. With our children. If we're not careful, the enemy slides in subtly and he changes our hearts. And sin attaches itself to our spirits and it causes us to become something we never thought we would ever be. Luke 21, 34. Put it up on the screen if you would, please. Paul, Jesus warned this. He said, be careful that you never allow your heart to grow cold. 
remain passionate and free from anxiety and the worries of this life, then you will not be caught off guard by what happens. Don't let me come and find you drunk or careless and living like everybody else. For that day, he's talking about the coming of the Lord, that day will come as a shocking surprise to all. Like a downpour that drenches everyone, catching many people unaware and unprepared. Keep a constant watch over your soul and pray for the courage and grace to prevail over those things that are destined to occur and that you stand before the presence of God with a clear conscience. What did Jesus say? Three things. He said, protect your heart. Remain passionate about who he is and get free from the anxieties and the worries of this life. Protect your heart. Make sure that you are understanding that you're not going to live in this world forever and the trumpet of God is going to sound and Jesus is coming back and you have to be ready. And going to church is not going to be enough and paying your tithes is not going to be enough. And knowing that you're a member of the church is not going to be enough. Your heart has to be clean. Your life has to be pure. We have to get sin out of our life. You can't experience God's glory. You can't experience His presence. We just sang it. He's a holy God. And we have to fall in love again with the holiness of the God who has saved us from our sins. We don't preach a lot about sanctification anymore, but our fathers... In the church, they used to preach about sanctification because they understood that you have to keep yourself under control every day and you have to allow the Holy Spirit to protect you so that you don't go too far in places that move you away from God and away from God's presence. I fear that what happens to us is that we've been around church so much. We've been around so many things that are godly that we're kind of like Samson. We're laying there in the lap of Delilah and we don't even realize that God's power is gone from our life. And we say to ourselves, just like we do every Sunday, just like we do every week, I'll just pick it back up. But you cannot pick up God's presence if you don't live a clean life. If you don't get sin out of your life, you're not going to be able to walk in the presence and the power of God. People say to me around Lake Erie all the time, I want to see the miracles of God. I want to see the demonstrations of God. I'm telling you, God doesn't pour His power out into unclean vessels. So this idea of getting sin out of our lives is very provoking. Because we are often such deniers, aren't we? And I'm talking to myself this morning. And I say with all humility that this past week I've been saying to God every day, God, I can't preach this message if I'm not living it. I need you to make sure there's not anything in me. I need to be sanctified. I need to be touched. I need to be cleansed. I need to be forgiven to ensure that I can say what I'm saying with conviction. Listen to what the Bible says. Because if we're not careful, the searchlight gets turned on in our heart. And if it were turned on in your heart this morning, what would you say about what you would see? Tracy Vest did such a great job Wednesday night talking about the church at Laodicea in our Revelation study. And she talked about the fact that they saw themselves as a people who were increased with goods and didn't need anything. And God said, you don't realize you're naked. You don't even realize how naked you are. 
and how much you need me. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. And Jerome, if you'll get ready to play. Such a strong word here. Listen, you'll see it on the screen in a moment. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you that God is light and there is no darkness in Him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim that we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and we are not living the truth. But if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And if we claim that we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that His Word has no place in our heart. Here's the bottom line. I fear that there are things that lie dormant in our hearts and we don't think they're ever going to hurt us. You know, I've, I've literally lost hundreds of pounds in my lifetime. Hundreds. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> you know what I've learned a lot of times is that a cinnamon honey bun that you eat today doesn't bother you today. But it shows up by the weekend. You getting the point? Oh, it didn't, didn't hurt me. Nobody got hurt, and we don't realize that it's dormant in our spirit. You know why pornography is such an evil sin? Because it lies dormant in your brain. And the devil punches the button every once in a while, and it pops right up. The right kind of trigger, the right kind of situation. Pops right up. With humility, I'm begging you, let's get the sin out of our lives so that we can be the people that God called us to be. I dug into the story of God's people in the Exodus, and I made a list of the things that I see God trying to get out of them. I was shocked at how much of these things reside in us. He had to deal with their rebellion. Their stubborn rebellion against the things that he wanted to do for them. It had to be so frustrating to God. He wanted to bless them. He wanted to help them. They just kept resisting him. Stubborn. He had to deal with their disobedience. Just completely doing what he told them not to do. They did it anyway. Greed, wanting to have their own way, wanting to be recognized. Frustrated that other people were getting glory that they wanted for themselves. A resistance to spiritual authority. 
Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to speak into my life. I, I, I love God as much as you do. You can't tell me that. Worship of idols. And an association with people that pulled them away from the God that loved them. That's just a short list of the things that God had to get out of them before they could get in the land. And some of them never made it. They got to Kadesh Barna, Numbers 20. And they simply would not trust God. And God said, okay, you can't go in. I've done about all I can for you. You can't go in. And you all, all of you that don't believe me, you have to die. And your sons will inherit. Your daughters will inherit the land. But you'll never see it. It had been 40 exhausting years trying to get people. <laughs> 40 years of trying to get people to the place where they would say, Okay, God, I'm all yours. How long has God been pulling at you? How long has God been trying to get you to say, I'm yours? Heart, soul, and mind, everything that I am is yours. These ugly, neglected sins, they rise up when we least expect. And they cause us to be something that we never thought we would ever be. Because in Exodus 32, the children of Israel are at the base of the mountain. Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments of God. And these people, whom God had redeemed out of slavery, had fed manna and quail and water and clothes that never wore out. Those people crafted a golden image into the form of a calf. And Exodus 32 says, when the people saw it, talking about the golden calf, they said, these are the gods who have brought us out of the land of Egypt. How could they say such a thing? Because they still had Egypt in them. Let's pray. There's a part of you right now that wants to say, Pastor, I will never worship a golden image. But you will. I'll never raise up another idol to God, but you will. If you continue to neglect the condition of your heart, you will. And it may not be a calf made out of gold or silver, but it may be a whole different kind of thing, but it's still an idol designed to take you away from the God who has loved you all of your life. Thank you for listening. Lake Erie Church is a multicultural Pentecostal church located in Perry, Ohio, about 30 minutes east of Cleveland. We would love to have you for a visit sometime. For more information or to connect with our team, please visit lakeeriechurch.com.